This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for iPhone, iPad, and iPod, Android, Kindle, Windows Phone, plus Mac or PC. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com/trekfm. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Literary Treks, our Star Trek books and comics show. I'm Christopher Jones, and once again, for one more week, I'm flying solo here during news. Matthew will be back next week. He has completed his secret mission and is getting settled back in and ready to return to the show. For this week, I'm going to be joined once again by Dan Gunther of Trek Lit Reviews to talk about Jeff Marriott's new book, Serpents in the Garden. But before we get to that, I want to bring you a few news stories this week. And the first one is about comics. It's about IDW and the city on the edge of forever. Part one is out now. This is the new graphic novel adaptation of Harlan Ellison's original script for The City on the Edge of Forever. Of course, the episode itself became very famous, one of the most famous episodes in all of Star Trek history. But the story we saw on the screen really was quite different from what Harlan Ellison originally wrote. It was changed a lot, and that led famously to an ongoing battle. There were a lot of hard feelings between Ellison and Gene Roddenberry because of that. And it even led to a lawsuit at one point. Thankfully, that all passed. The original script has been available as a book for quite some time, but IDW got together with Harlan Ellison to work on a graphic novel adaptation. And part one dropped last week, and I've had a chance to read it, and I really enjoyed it. You can tell right off the bat that it is not the same story, although it is very similar in theme, at least at the beginning, sort of what happens. But of course, the what the Guardian is, actually Guardians of Forever, plural here, they go down the planet, uh, what happens on the ship, it's all different. And I'm not going to tell you about it, because if you don't know, I certainly don't want to spoil it for you. But I really enjoyed the uh, first issue, and I enjoyed the artwork, which is quite different from what we've been getting in the ongoing comics so you're you're going to get something totally new here. But I think the art style really fits the story. I've had some people mention on our Facebook page that they didn't really like the art style. And I can see that because it is different, like I say. But I think it fits the story. I think it fits what Ellison is going for in the original script. And also, if you take this back to the 60s aesthetic, it feels right to me. So I enjoyed it. We're going to talk about this here on the show. I think what we'll do is wait until all four parts are out, and then we'll do a feature on it. And I'm actually thinking about getting the guys from our TOS show, Standard Orbit, to come over here to Literary Trek so we can talk together 
about uh, the different versions of City. So I recommend that you go pick it up. It's really nicely done. It's written by Scott and David Tipton, who, of course, anyone listening to this show is probably familiar with from their work in Star Trek comics in the past. We've done a number of their stories here on the show as features. J.K. Woodward does the interior art. Juan Ortiz does a special cover. And Paul Shipper is doing the variant covers. And the issue is $3.99. It's available right now. I have the digital version. That's how I get all my comics. I actually get mine through the dedicated Star Trek comics application. So... If you're someone who has been getting your Star Trek comics digitally, but you've been getting them through the Comixology app, and now you're really bummed out that Amazon has removed the ability for you to purchase through the application, that ability still exists in the dedicated Star Trek comics app. So I recommend that one for your Star Trek comics. All right, so that's City Part 1. The next story that I have for you, this one, oh, I am so excited about it, but I'm really jealous at the same time of all of our listeners in Germany. There is a new publisher, a new Star Trek publisher in Germany. We all know CrossCult, right? CrossCult does the books and they do these just beautiful covers. Well, now High Score Music is a new Star Trek publisher in Germany and they are doing something that I have been wanting for a long time and I desperately hope succeeds and catches on and becomes something that they do in the U.S. as well. They are bringing to life Michael Jan Friedman's Death in Winter as an audio adaptation, not just an audio book. This isn't going to be one person narrating Friedman's novel which is a story about Beverly Crusher and a mission to the world Kevratis, which is on the Romulan neutral zone. And she's trying to help the natives there uh, to overcome a plague that is just killing everyone there. And then it also plays in a a bit to the love affair, which most of us wanted to see on screen, but we do eventually get in the novels between Picard and Beverly. But instead, this is a full-on audio adaptation that is going to feature over 40 actors, 40 actors. In fact, it includes the German dub voices of all the main TNG characters that appear in the book. So High Score Music is going all out here to make this an authentic next generation production for German fans. And I have to tell you, my my ability to understand spoken German is not great. I could do a little bit better with reading it. But I'm going to buy this anyway, even though I'm not going to really understand it and listen to it because I want to see what they're doing and how they're bringing this novel to life. And I very, very much hope that this is a big success. I hope that all Star Trek fans in Germany will pick up this book, which is going to be available through Amazon.de and also through iTunes and really, really support this. There are no plans to release a CD version, as far as we know. And also, as far as we know, there are no other titles in the works. So this seems like, first of all, it seems like a big production. It seems like a kind of expensive production as well. So if one of the reasons we haven't been getting Star Trek audiobooks is because of the cost Well, this is going to cost a lot more than bringing one actor in to narrate a book. However, if it's a huge success, who knows what might happen? So 
I hope this succeeds. If you don't speak German, consider picking it up anyway to find out how they're presenting the novel. And let's all get behind this. I think it's a fantastic idea, and I certainly hope to see it in English soon. And thanks to the Trek Collective for getting this information for us. And in fact, thanks to Jens Defner of Unreality SF and Christian Freitag for sending the news over to the Trek Collective. And then that's where we learned about it as well. And visit the Trek Collective in general. They have fantastic news about Star Trek books and comics. That's where we get a lot of our news that we share with you here on the show. Now, the last item that I have for you in news before we go into the feature is about IDW's September Star Trek comics lineup. And September is going to be a full month for Star Trek comics. Ongoing number 37, which is part three of the six-part Q Gambit, will be coming out. It's written by Mike Johnson with art and a cover by Tony Shastein. And this is, like I said, it's the third part of a six-part series. This is what they say about it. Captain Kirk and the crew of the Enterprise find themselves decades in the future thanks to the mischievous Q. The galaxy has changed beyond recognition and nowhere more so than on Earth itself. Now the cover to this one has Q in a red engineering slash security Abramsverse uniform, or at least it, it looks that way because the cover is very sort of yellow and reddish. Maybe he's in a command uniform and they just wanted some contrast with the golden background. I'm not sure. But then we've got Worf in yet another bizarre outfit, which poor Worf, when they put him in comics, I mean, we just did the Worf and the Barbarian, the Killing Shadows on here a couple of weeks ago. I don't know, poor Worf, but he he's on there. And then we've got Abrams vs. Spock and McCoy being led by Major Kira, who's firing a phaser as explosions go off all around them. And we have the USS Defiant, which of course we know was destroyed, but was then replaced, swooping in. So I don't know what's going on here. And to be honest, as I keep seeing more of these covers and reading blurbs, I get more and more nervous about where this story is going because, I don't know, this kind of crossover is, it's kind of of strange here. The alternate photo cover for this one is Worf, a photo of Worf from Deep Space Nine. So we'll we'll find out. At, at least I'm looking forward to the first one of these coming out so we can sort of get a feel for where they're going with this. Now also coming out in September will be the fourth part of what I talked about at the top of the show here, the original script to The City on the Edge of Forever. This one is, of course, written by Harlan Ellison, and Scott and David Tipton are helping to do the adaptation for uh, the graphic novel, and J.K. Woodward, Juan Ortiz, and Paul Shipper on art. Star Trek Gold Key Archives Volume 2 will be coming in September as well. These are stories written by Lynn Wine, with art by Alberto Giolitti, and cover by Michael Stribling. And Volume 2 includes fully remastered versions of issues number 7 through 12 of the original Gold Key comics. That includes the stories The Voodoo Planet, The Legacy of Lazarus, and The Brain Shocker. And then one more thing for September. I told you it's a busy month. Star Trek Ongoing Volume 8 will be dropping. And 
I don't actually know what that's going to include yet, but just looking at the rundown of all the comics that they have done for ongoing, I think this one will probably include the Kittermer Conflict, which is a four-parter that came right after After Darkness, Parallel Lives, which was the crossover with the all-female crew, that was a two-parter, and then I Enterprise, where the Enterprise actually comes to life. And that was a two-parter as well. That's my guess. I don't know for sure. We might know by next week, and we will uh, update you when we know exactly what's going to be in there. That's all I have in news today. Dan will be joining me shortly. But before that, I want to tell you about our sponsor for today's show, Audible.com. They are the premier source for audiobooks, best source you'll find anywhere online, with over 150,000 titles waiting for you right now. And they put hundreds of new titles in every single week. They have new releases, current bestsellers, lots of classics, great Star Trek books like Prime Directive, Federation, and Spock's World as well. And each week we like to recommend a book to you. And in honor of High Score Music's adaptation of Death in Winter, I wanted to recommend another of Michael Jan Friedman's books. This one is Faces of Fire, and this is narrated by B.B. Besh actually, who, as you'll remember, was the original Carol Marcus. And sadly, of course, Besh passed away back in 1996. So here's a chance for you to hear her voice again. And what is Faces of Fire about? Well, en route to Alpha Malurian 6 to settle a dispute between two religions, the USS Enterprise stops for a routine progress check on the terraforming colony on Beta Kanzandia 3. While Spock is left behind to continue his scientific studies, the Enterprise crew continues to Alpha Malurian 6, only to find that the dispute has turned to war. But as Captain Kirk attempts to settle the hostilities, he is confronted by a woman from his past, and when a Klingon faction attempts to take control of the terraforming colony, Spock must use everything in his power to defeat the Klingons or face certain death. And besides picking this up because Friedman wrote, death and winter. This storyline just kind of a little bit loosely reflects what we're going to talk about in the feature today in Serpents in the Garden. So pick this book up and hear B.B.'s voice again and catch one of Michael Jen Friedman's books. And as a Trek of Film listener, you can get it absolutely free. And by doing that, you'll also be supporting the show. All you need to do is to go to audibletrial.com slash trekoffilm and sign up today. You can get this book free or any other book you want. And if at the end of the trial, you decide not to stick with Audible, there's nothing to lose. You get to keep this book. But by supporting Audible, you are really supporting us. Because when just one of you tries Audible, the money we receive almost covers the cost of hosting and distributing literary treks for one entire month. So this one little act by you really, really does mean a lot to us here. And you get wonderful audiobooks in exchange. And each month you'll get credits and you'll get great prices and great selection as well. I've been an Audible customer for 14 years myself. I get my books from them every single month and I don't plan to stop anytime soon. I know you'll love it too. So go check it out. Audibletrial.com slash Trekafilm. And we really thank Audible for their support of Literary Treks and the network. Today we're going to talk about Jeff Marriott's newest Star Trek novel, Serpents in the Garden. This is Jeff's second original series novel in the past year, in April of 2013, so exactly a year after this book, he wrote The Folded World. 
And uh, this time he's writing a follow-up to an original series episode. This is a sequel of sorts to A Private Little War, although it's a sequel that takes place much further down the timeline, right around the time of the motion picture. And Admiral Kirk is concerned about whether or not he made the right decision in arming the Hill people. And so he finds out that the Klingons may once again be interfering in the affairs of Neural, the planet that we see in A Private Little War. And he takes it upon himself to embark on a secret mission to go to Neural and expose the Klingons, while at the same time trying to minimize damage with the native population due to the Prime Directive or his violation of the Prime Directive, as we'll discuss whether we see that as being the case as we go today. And with no Starship backup, Kirk may just have created his first no-win scenario. Matthew's still away this week, so I'm happy to have back with me here Dan Gunther, again, from Trek Lit Reviews. Dan, thanks for joining me this week. Hi, Chris. Thanks. It's great to be back again. You're becoming a regular here on the show, Dan. Yay! I'm happy to be a regular. (laughs) Well, I'm happy to have you. We love having you on the show again. As I said last week, I love having someone else who's really, really smart about Star Trek literature, (laughs) just like Matthew is on here with me to help me through these discussions. Well, that's high praise. Thank you very much. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean it. I mean it. You guys really do know the literature. Well, Dan, you put together the outline today And I appreciate that. And you picked out a number of good points for us to talk about here. And the first one is the anthology nature of the original series, because I think that really does come through here in this book. What did you see in terms of anthology? What do you want to discuss here? Okay, well, the original Star Trek series very much didn't run from episode to episode and carry on any storylines. So... A lot of times you would see the Enterprise come across a situation, you know, deal with the inhabitants of whatever planet they're investigating that week, and then, you know, do their little mission, maybe disrupt their way of life, destroy a god or two. (laughs) Right. And then the Enterprise would happily warp on away to its next assignment next week with no consequences whatsoever. Right. And I think... More than any other episode, the episode that this novel is based on, A Private Little War, um, really demanded a follow-up because of all the endings of all the original series episodes, this one, I want to say troubling almost. I would agree with that. Yeah, troubling. Yeah, Yeah. Mm -hmm. it was an audacious end to an episode and very unexpected. You know, Kirk ends up arming an entire population to battle another population on this planet. And that's the last thing we see. They beam up and leave. Yeah. And I wonder if it was really necessary, which is something I want to talk about as we go along as well. I think there are some other episodes like that, though. We have a joke here on the network about the the ship that shadows the Enterprise that comes in and cleans up Kirk's (laughs) messes when he flies away from a planet. (laughs) And... (laughs) You know, I think A Taste of Armageddon is another episode like that for Mm -hmm. me where I feel like, well, what happened to these people after Kirk forced them to face the realities of a real war with real consequences? Mm -hmm. Uh, Space Seed is another one where, and that's where I found it a little bit hypocritical of Kirk in this book, where he talks about how, well, I, I guess I 
underestimated or I miscalculated my people coming back to investigate the Klingon influence on this society. Well, Kirk should have gone back and checked on Khan as well, right? Well, never mm-hmm. crossed his mind to do that. So I thought that was a little bit hypocritical of Kirk to say that. But, but yeah, I can definitely agree with you that A Private Little War is an episode that kind of demanded a follow-up. The problem for me, though, is that I don't think it was particularly a good episode. Mm-hmm. And so when you're following that up with another story, it feels like the story the next story may be crippled a little bit as well by the fact that the material that you're building upon wasn't necessarily the greatest material in the first place. Right. I, th- I think A Private Little War was, you know, very obviously, you know, a Vietnam al- yeah, allegory. Right. And that's yeah. what they were trying to do. Yeah. And beyond that, I think I agree there's not really much to the episode other than them trying to make their point. Yeah. And so if you kind of translate that into like a real life situation or what happens next, yeah, I agree that it doesn't necessarily um, lend itself to real world consequences or a realistic follow up. Yeah, it's very much true. That was an allegory for Vietnam. And what I see here, and I, I don't want to go into any deep political things here with this, but now that you mention that and you point that out, I do feel when I'm reading this book that this is an allegory for Iraq. Mm. And I'm not saying that just because of what's happening in the news right now as we record this. I'm talking about everything that transpired from really from the time that I was in high school when we first became involved with the Gulf War One, mm-hmm. and then what happened after that. I can see a lot of just as the original writers were talking about Vietnam, I see the Iraq stuff here in this story as well. And to keep it neutral, you know, and position-wise there, what I think it shows is that this is just a recurring story within civilization, right? That this type of intervention by one party in the affairs of another happens time and time again. And it often becomes a quagmire for Mm. one side. Well, it's a quagmire for the side intervening. And it creates problems for the side that is uh, is kind of hosting the intervention. <laughs> I don't know if that sounds right or not, but that's, <laughs> you know what I mean there. Mm-hmm. It's like a recurring uh, theme and it just happens over and over. And here we are 50 years later and Jeff can talk about this in his book and it just feels very much the same, which is, I guess, good and bad in this book where I felt like this is the stuff I've already seen. But yet it's a new story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, those real world parallels, I mean, you can see them all over the place. I mean, even um, the USSR uh, invasion of Afghanistan and then the US invasion of Afghanistan um, more recently. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. Anytime you get kind of the large superpower trying to influence the smaller less influential power, you get this kind of, I want to say almost patriarchal relationship between the invading power or the influencing right. power. Yeah, and the, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, so yeah, the anthology nature of TOS is at play 
here as well, even though this is a follow-up, because I was talking to Matthew. He He's still away, by the way, but he's going to be back next week for everyone listening, wondering, you know, when is Matthew coming back? But Matthew and I were talking on iMessage before we started recording today, and we were just talking about the book. And I said to Matthew that I think that this story might have worked as an episode better than a book, that... Hmm. I can see, I'm thinking about the events that take place in this book, and I'm trying to picture them as playing out on my television, much in the way that A Private Little War did. Mm-hmm. And then I can see, like, maybe I can follow the threads of the different characters through the story a little bit better, so that it doesn't feel quite as much like, oh, now we're returning to this character. Mm-hmm. Oh, now we're over here. And then later, especially like with Scotty going on a rescue mission, which really went nowhere in my opinion right. like it was just yeah. there so that we had some other original series characters in the story besides kirk mm-hmm. yeah i definitely felt that as well and i mean in in some ways it was kind of welcome mm-hmm. but in other ways i guess one of the things with this novel is it didn't really feel like a, a tos type story and i guess maybe that's just because we only fo- focus on kirk for the most part and we kind of don't maybe. get that original crew flavor which i mean made for a unique and interesting story but yeah um i don't know there's something missing there was something missing well that might be it though for me it actually did feel like a tos story but we were missing most of the characters and Mm -hmm. so that's why when scotty comes into play and then we see uhura and we see Chekhov. I was glad to see it when it came into the book because, Mm -hmm. okay, here are some other characters. And I thought Jeff did a nice job of writing Scotty in particular. Mm -hmm. It really did feel like Scotty. So really good job there. I wanted to see more of that. And as I was getting towards the end of the book, I was waiting and I was waiting for them to come in. And although they do come into play, it wasn't in the way that I was expecting or hoping for. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Like as as welcome as their presence was in the book, in some ways it kind of felt a little bit tacked on. Yeah. Just yeah. It felt like a, a it feels like a loose thread. That that's mm-hmm. sort of my feeling in this book. Like there are things here that could be tied together, but they're not. Mm-hmm. And and I like that on a TV series like on DS9, where you have all these loose threads all the time. Mm-hmm. But in a novel, I I kind of want them to come together a bit more towards the end. I'm not going to like pretend to know how this book was put together or anything, but it almost felt like at some point there was the realization, oh, we don't have any of the other characters in here. Maybe we should mm, work in Scotty and Chekhov and Uhura somehow. Could be. Yeah, I'm not sure. Well, let's talk about some more of the supporting characters because you liked a number of them I know. And you you mentioned it to me before we recorded that you could identify with a few of them including, mm-hmm. I don't know exactly how to pronounce the name because we haven't <laughs> heard it, but I'm going to say Nairan, N-Y-R-A-N. Yeah, that was my guess as well, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, yeah, he, he was a really interesting character, kind of, you know, a young man, uh, kind of with his head in the clouds a little bit, with struck by wanderlust and young love. I felt a little space Romeo and Juliet going on a little bit there. A little bit, yeah, absolutely. You know, they're from different villages. They're not supposed to get along, and yet they have this little love affair going on. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And I think, you know, there's certain things that 
a lot of people can identify with. Uh, you know, the young love idea, and I, I'm sure everyone's experienced that in their life. Doing stupid things. Absolutely. When you were in love, yes. <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, and Nairan was somebody I was very easily able to kind of latch on to. You know, in stories, there's those characters that you kind of identify with and go along with on their journey. And uh, yeah, he makes some stupid decisions, but I could go along with him and I could kind of get inside his head a bit and follow the story from his perspective. Usually when you do stupid things when you're in love, though, you don't have to fight off two Mugato by yourself. Well, this is true. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Not usually anyway. So, <laughs> Which reminds me, this book, there, there's a line in the book that sort of sums up the book for me a little bit, where they say, the night belongs to the Mugato. Mm. <laughs> because there are a lot of Mugato in this book and a lot of fight scenes. And one of them was it was nice to have one of them but it almost started feeling like filler after a while like a little bit like yeah. what what does everyone remember about a private little war it's right. the mugato actually now people may not remember which episode the mugato was from but if they see this creature they go i remember that and it mm -hmm. was almost there were there were too many mugato in this book i felt yeah absolutely I don't know, sometimes it felt like, well, we need to throw some peril in here, so let's have the Magatu attack kind of thing. Yeah. What about other characters? We see Tyree again, and his golden <laughs> locks are turning gray now. <laughs> Tyree, I kind of found, um, I don't know, there was something kind of a little bit one note about him, a little bit, oh, he's our great leader and that kind of thing, but I didn't really... I felt like I identified more with him in the episode, A Private Little War, than I did in this one. Mm -hmm. I couldn't really get inside his head in this novel for some reason. Neither could I. And that was one of the problems I had with getting through the book, is that I was I was having trouble latching on to the characters and and getting pulled into the story. Like I'm I'm following them around, I'm following Kirk around. Things are happening but mm -hmm. it wasn't pulling me along the way that I really wanted it to. Yeah, for sure. One character that I, I found interesting, not really relatable or anything, but uh, Appella, who is kind of the mm -hmm. the leader of Victory, the, the what, were, what were the village people in the original episode. N not the village people singing YMCA, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> right. That, that was a very different episode. Which one was he? <laughs> Oh, man. Um, yeah, I didn't really identify with his character so much as uh, enjoyed reading his character. Kind of the, you know, sniveling middle management dictator guy. Yeah, that's a good way to describe him. Yeah, and then who, of course, then realizes that he has no real power. And, you know, he's just kind of been bootlicking the Klingons and uh, not really having any power of his own in the long run his kind of change of heart or turnaround was in some ways telegraphed but in other ways was kind of enjoyable to watch play out it really did seem like appella was just in this like you say for like he's a middle manager but he wants to climb the ladder and it's not really for his people or for anyone else it's just for him and he plays along with the klingons and he puts up with a lot from Krill. 
as long as he thinks that he's still somehow climbing that ladder. But he keeps asking Krill for more technology, right? He wants this mm-hmm. and that. And Krill tells him at one point that it's this is it's always the same with you. It's always I want, I want, I want. You always want more. And then after that, Appella seems to realize that he's not going to achieve that power that he wants. There is a, a part about, and it's not even halfway through the book, actually, but he says that he was not a partner. He was simply a means to an end. Everything the Klingons did was in service only to themselves, not to Neural. And Appella himself would never, he was coming to believe, attain the power and prestige due him. So he thinks that he deserves to have all this power and prestige in the first place, right? Right, yeah. And this statement's interesting to me, too, because absolutely what the Klingons are doing is just for their own benefit. They don't care anything about the people on Neural. But I feel the same way about Appella as well. But this realization, mm-hmm. you know, finally kind of does play in at the end of the book when Kirk yeah. is actually able to try to bring everyone together. But Yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, Appella talks about how, you know, one day he's going to be the ruler of the entire planet, you know, yeah. not just his village, but all of the hill people and everyone. And yeah, he and the Klingons have kind of a similar mindset. You know, they want for themselves and... It's a little hypocritical for him to be accusing the Klingons of having that mindset when he himself feels exactly the same way. Right. And that's one reason it won't work either, right? I mean, they're mm-hmm. supposed to be working together, but they both want this for themselves. So that's never going to work. Yeah. Well, who else do we have in here? We've got we've got red shirts that get <laughs> killed by Mugato. Yeah, kind of. Uh, this book really follows the red shirt pattern, unfortunately. I th- I thought the the Starfleet characters were interesting, and from page like the first page they're introduced, you mm-hmm. kind of already know they're gonna die. So yeah, I was hoping to be surprised and that they wouldn't, but uh, no such luck. <laughs> right, but they are interesting in that we do see these Starfleet officers who look up to the admiral, and not just an admiral, but it's Kirk as well, right? So they're gonna follow mm-hmm. him off to this planet on this harebrained mission that he's cooked up for himself that he's <laughs> trying to do secretly and there's like one admiral that knows that he's going to do it mm. and he wanders off so they're they remind me of the young we, this is something we saw in the movies right there would be a young crew and it happened again of course in the wrath of Khan as well where you've got the trainees on the ship and everyone looks up mm-hmm. to admiral kirk yeah absolutely it's a little frustrating though that you know Admiral Kirk has this plot armor and can't be harmed, but yeah. you know, the young men and women of Starfleet, ah, they just get mowed down. <laughs> right. Well, speaking of that, this is another thing that and I'm not I'm not really faulting Jeff for writing in this way because he's writing a novel and he's getting through the story and Kirk has been presented as being this invincible character right, throughout absolutely. Star Trek. So I totally understand where the writing's coming from. But there is the point where he takes this extreme beating and they describe how he's black and blue and green and pink and yellow and this colorful (laughs) tissue damage. And then a few pages later, he's back out in the fight again. Mm -hmm. And like he can barely say the word can't at one moment. And now he's back up in action again. Yeah. So he really does seem like some sort of superhero (laughs) here. 
Not to mention that there's days and days and days of intense, brutal physical labor (laughs) between both of those as well, you know. Yeah. But he's Kirk, right? But he's Kirk. So I guess that's how it goes. But (laughs) what I would want to do here actually is what I want to see in the story isn't a hundred pages of him recovering from the beating. I would rather just have the beating be less severe so that everything that comes after doesn't seem so impossible from Mm -hmm. a human being's perspective. Yeah, absolutely. Like there's Kirk worship and then eh, there's a little bit much. Yeah. What I will say though, and I was thinking about this as I was reading as well, is that some of the criticisms that I have of the book fade away if I just think about this as an original series episode. Oh, right. And this is why I was telling Matthew that maybe this would work better as a TV episode because... What do you do when you're writing a TOS novel? Do you try to make it fit our modern sensibilities and what we're accustomed to in some of the 24th century novels that we've gotten in recent years? Or do you try to be true to the creative of the original series where Kirk would get the crap beaten out of him and then pop right back up and keep going? Mm -hmm. And so in that respect, if that's what you're going for, a lot of this stuff does make sense and... And it is true to the original series in that way. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. Um, Actually, in a lot of ways, uh, looking at it that way, I think this novel was very true to the original series sensibility. Uh, Even down to, you know, reading it, I could see these locations that were that were in that episode, you know. Yeah, I think that came across really well. It really felt like it belonged in that universe, in that era. Yeah, it did. It did feel like that. And and that's good. I mean, that's you don't want to write a TOS novel that doesn't feel like TOS because then mm-hmm. you end up with you know you well in this case Kirk primarily and a little bit Scotty Chekhov and Uhura doing things in <laughs> dare I say it gets a little bit into the Abrams verse world where you've got characters doing stuff in Star Trek clothing that doesn't quite feel right. Hmm. Maybe if you didn't do what Jeff did, which is to make it feel more like, yeah, this this would happen on the TV show, even if it right. defies logic a little bit. Yeah, no, that makes sense yeah. for sure. The other thing that's in here is the the classic Kirk as the Lothario, where he sleeps with this woman there. And, and even the line, it was almost like out of a romance novel or something, right? Where she's like, you're such a brave man. And even if you were only here for one night, I would like to be with a man like you just for that one night. And I'm, that's not oh, verbatim. Yeah. I'm remembering what I read, but it's pretty, <laughs> it's pretty much, close. It's pretty close, right? And then Kirk's like, okay, well, you know, as long as you understand that's the deal, then, then yeah, sounds good to me. And then she leads him back to her place and says, we'll go back to my place. It's a good place to be together. And Kirk says, together is good. <laughs> I do have to admit I did laugh at that part. That was pretty great. <laughs> I could kind of almost see uh the author grinning as he Probably, typed the yeah, words. I think so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Now I don't agree that that is really how Kirk was. I'm more in John Tenuto's camp that Kirk is not really the ladies' man Lothario character that he's portrayed as in the Abramsverse films. And as most fans think about him as being, now he definitely mm-hmm. makes out with a lot of space babes, no doubt. 
but yeah. it usually is related to saving the ship or the crew somehow or you know right so yeah and i mean he's he's kind of got a lot of x's all around the galaxy and stuff but that actually kind of goes back again to the anthology nature of of tos you know yeah. they're not going to reference girlfriend number one from episode three you know the scriptwriter probably you know has no idea about that is just writing tos and says oh here's an ex-girlfriend okay um it's you know uh janet wallace not ruth or whoever <laughs> right <laughs> here's an idea maybe this has been done if not it should be we have these time travel things i think comics would work well for this we need vash and kirk to end up in the same place sometimes so that because I, I see vash as maybe trying to sleep with all the different captains <laughs> oh yeah i could see that for sure you know just got a little checklist <laughs> I think so. All right. Well, well, let's move off the characters now and talk about, okay, this is one thing that I, I don't want to get into a deep debate about this, but it is a central point of the book. And it's what I see as the naivety of intervention. It's this idea that, and I'm going to stay broad here in my terms, but it's this idea that when you look at societies, that there is one culture, one society who feels that it knows better than everyone else and it wants to to shape it wants to spread its ideals to mm -hmm. other societies uh, it sees what it perceives as a wrong or an injustice or simply the wrong way to live life and it wants to correct that and we see that in star trek especially in the original series through kirk with the federation which despite being a union of hundreds and hundreds of planets with very, very different cultures and cultures that are, for the most part, allowed to be themselves, right? You know, we don't see Earth trying to impose its values on Vulcan or Vulcan trying to impose its values on Andoria. Right. They all have their own unique cultures and there are things that they don't even know about each other, like we find out about the Trill, Trill had been in the Federation or joined Symbiont and Trills had been on Earth, you know, even during the 23rd century. And yet in the 24th century, they didn't know anything about this joint, joint union of Symbiont and Host. Mm -hmm. uh, there's the Ponfar, which came as a shock to Kirk in a mock time, despite the fact that humans and Vulcans had been working together for centuries at that point. So you see that there is this sort of independent nature of cultures, and yet we see the Federation with their vaunted prime directive constantly interfering with more primitive cultures. And Kirk talks on a number of occasions in this book here about how they are spreading freedom to other worlds mm -hmm. and that it's a wonderful thing that the Federation is doing and, and the Klingons are so terrible. And I found it odd that Kirk is going back to a planet where he armed one side in a conflict and created an even bigger problem. He's going back because he feels like maybe I did the wrong thing. He sees what's going on. And then he says in the book that I don't think I did the wrong thing anymore. Mm -hmm. 
And I felt, this is where I felt the writing of Kirk was a little bit off, especially this Kirk, who is the movie Kirk. I mean, it's motion picture, so he's not quite as wise as, say, the Undiscovered Country Kirk. But still, he's a lot mm. older than he was on during the five-year mission. I, I found there to be a lot of naivety in what he said here. And I really, really question whether this is the right thing for the Federation to be doing in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there are a number th- of things, uh, both in the original episode and in this novel, that you know were problematic, uh, to say the least. And yeah, I, I don't feel that uh, a lot of the ideas kind of being espoused were very uh, progressive. And I guess in that way, again, it kind of lends to that original series right. feeling. Authenticity right? I mean, to the original series, it makes sense that that would be yeah, the, the view, right? Absolutely. I mean, you have uh, Errand of Mercy when he visits the Organians and he says, we will feed and clothe and educate your people. And, you know, all we ask is that you don't allow the Klingons to come here. You know, that, you know, first season TOS, but still, like, when you hear what the prime directive is later, it kind of seems to fly in the face of it. Yeah. And uh, I think the Prime Directive and Star Trek's kind of philosophy is very progressive. But a lot of times in the original series, you kind of get this spreading freedom throughout the galaxy, planting our flag and, and you know, bringing liberty to the natives. Just, yeah, it's a little problematic and a little colonial. It is colonial, right? And that's what I find mm-hmm. odd about the Federation having this position. Uh, we we just did Rapture on the Ready Room uh, mm-hmm. last week, actually, the DS9 episode, which is the episode in which Bajor's petition for Federation membership is approved, and they're going to have the ceremony, but mm-hmm. then it gets called off because Cisco sees locusts and right. runs into the meeting. <laughs> and it's one of my favorite episodes, actually. I'm not making fun of it. Oh, no, it's pretty, it's great. <laughs> but at the end of the episode... So Cisco is sent there to prepare Bajor for admission into the Federation. Now, Bajor's culture is ancient, really, really ancient compared to Earth's culture, right? And mm-hmm. they had space flight, I, I actually think, thousands of years before humans did. Yeah. Because their their civilization is more in decline at this point when, when we yeah. meet them. Because Picard says they were, you know, masters of philosophy and right. architecture when humans weren't yet walking upright. Right, exactly. But the Federation wants this world. And then at the end of Rapture, Admiral Watley still states the case that, like, if I pull you from here, the Bajorans will get upset and we'll lose Bajor forever. So it is mm-hmm. like there's this colonialism within the Federation a lot of the time. Like, I think we're supposed to think of them as a group of enlightened worlds where when planets reach a certain level and they join the galactic community, they can join this group of other worlds. Mm-hmm. But then we see in a lot of stories the opposite, where it's actually the Federation going out, like trying to bring these worlds in for their own strategic purposes, which is what the Klingons are doing in right. A Private Little War and in this story in particular, in Serpents in the Garden, where they need this energy source from this planet. So it's a strategic thing for them. Mm-hmm. And then for the Federation, we just don't want to have the Klingons there because we want to make sure they can't encroach on any more of our territory. And they even talk in the book here about, well, maybe we could make Neural a Federation protectorate. Right. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think colonialism and uh, those kind of ideas do creep into our Star Trek every once in a while. Uh, you mentioned the Bajor thing. The one thing that I always remember was that one Deep Space Nine episode where the um, where the poet comes through the wormhole yeah. after mm-hmm. being gone for thousands of years and they reinstitute the Dejar as the caste system. Mm-hmm. And Cisco says, well, you know, if you have a caste system, you can't be in the Federation. You know, so this, you know, culture that's ancient and and you know, very advanced and that kind of thing. Well, you know, they don't meet our standards, right. so they can't join the cool club. You know, yeah. well, that kind of bugged me a bit. Yeah, I think it, it's it's hard. I mean, this idea, this view of a utopian future and this principle of the prime directive is sort of at odds with the reality of civilizations and existence and just free thinking people in general. Mm-hmm. There's too much diversity and there are too many differing viewpoints in any society for that type of just like, yeah, we're going to be hands off. We're not going to mess with you no matter what to, to right. work. You know, so, yeah, absolutely. So so it's naturally at odds within storytelling. So mm-hmm. I just found that interesting here. And I guess my question is going back to a private little war. Did Kirk really need to arm the Hill people? in the first place. Now, obviously for the story, because it was talking about Vietnam, I understand why it happened in the story. Mm-hmm. But in Serpents in the Garden, Kirk is questioning his own actions. Should I have done that? And also in the book, when Scotty explains, well, he doesn't actually explain it to the Admiral. He's thinking about it in his head. And then he says, "Never mind." But when he's thinking about what happened when Kirk called up the ship and they, they made the guns and they took them down. It just feels like they didn't have to do that. You know, Kirk could have left and told the Federation, you need to go to this planet immediately and see what's going on there. Maybe some more people would have died in the Mm -hmm. intervening time, but it's a much better solution than taking it upon yourself as a starship captain to actually arm one side against the other and then leave. Right. And leave them to to themselves, right? Absolutely. One thing that I always kind of remember is uh, the first season of The Next Generation, the episode Too Short a Season, where basically that admiral had years earlier armed both sides of this conflict. Exactly. And then left. And uh, I, I can't remember exactly where I read this or heard this, but it was basically supposed to be a statement about, you know, kind of this episode and Kirk's Mm -hmm. solution and saying like, well, let's see what that looks like 30 years, 50 years later. You can see that. Well, it's interesting Mm -hmm. too, because, you know, Roddenberry himself, his views evolved from the time of TOS to TNG. I mean, his position on certain things and just the kind of the nature Mm -hmm. of the vision evolved a little bit and then television had evolved as well. So yeah, absolutely. Well, let's move on a couple more points here before we wrap up consequences. I know you wanted to talk about some of the consequences of the decision and how they play out in the story itself. Mm -hmm. And I I think in a lot of ways, this story is uh, all about consequences. There's the consequences, like we've been talking about, of uh, Kirk's original decision to arm the Hill people. And there's also the decision, the consequences of the decision of going back to Neural now. And I mean, for example, uh, 
the young Starfleet officers we talked about who gave their lives for this particular mission. Um, at one point in the novel, Kirk kind of reflects on this, thinking about telling their parents about these young men and women who died on this planet. And they've probably never even heard the name Neural and know nothing about what's going on here. And uh, I just found it interesting that that idea of consequences kept coming up. Well, I think it plays into what I was saying earlier on, not only Vietnam, but if we also see this as Iraq, there's a price to pay if you intervene. Mm -hmm. You're You're going to experience a loss of life yourself on your own side. There's no way to avoid it. And so while we kind of laughed earlier that this book holds true to the whole red shirt bit in the original series, it actually makes... It, it plays a more important role in this story in that it wasn't just the ha-ha, you know, this guy in the red shirt on the landing party got shot by a flower mm-hmm. and he's dead. And so everyone else be careful. Here it actually does illustrate that because of Kirk's actions, people will lose their lives. And so if you're going to get involved in something like this, you have to be willing to accept that price. And also... I think way the fact that there is that price forces you to really think it should force you to really think through what you're doing. Like, is it worth this? If I do this, is it worth these consequences and and the fact that these men and women will lose their lives Mm -hmm. and will it actually achieve the result that I'm looking for in the first place, whether that result is right or wrong is up, for interpretation, depending on the person. But mm-hmm. the person who makes the decision to intervene, they have some idea in their head of what their end game is, what their goal is. So is this price worth paying for what I'm trying to achieve here? And it's something that I don't think Kirk thinks about. Yeah, I kind of got that feeling as well. Like, it kind of feels at various points in this novel that he's not really sure what he wants to accomplish here. Mm -hmm. And in a lot of ways, it's very fortuitous that it worked out the way it did. And so ultimately those three officers did end up giving their lives for something that was ultimately beneficial and a success. But I feel like, the resolution kind of comes not through a very well thought out strategic plan to right the wrongs, but more of let's see what we can maybe accomplish and let's see what happens. And, Oh, look, we can do this. And Oh, it worked out. It just felt a little bit, uh, I don't know. (laughs) Well, you and I both felt that the resolution was sort of rushed and, too neat Mm -hmm. and just quick and you said that they gave their lives for something that did turn out well and did matter but you also told me before we recorded that this book demands a follow-up just like you felt that a private little war demanded a follow-up well now serpents in the garden demands a follow-up as well Mm -hmm. and i totally agree because kirk it, it may have worked out in the end that he can bring the the two villages together and they're going to rebuild and restart 
the, the mining operation for the benefit of everyone, they say. But when you have two people at odds with each other for this long, it's always tenuous when they come together and they sit at the table and they say that, okay, mm-hmm. well, we're going to work together now. And the way it's portrayed here in the book is completely unrealistic. And it's just mm-hmm. this sort of happy ending. But I want to know, well, what happens one year from now or 10 years from now or 30 years from now? Did the yeah. Starfleet officers that you're talking about actually give their lives for something that did matter or not? Because mm-hmm. they could end up far worse from this than they were under the Klingons. Absolutely. Um by the end of this novel, I mean, this is a deeply damaged society yeah. that has instituted slavery for the first time. You don't come back from that overnight. Right. Again, I'm not, I'm not a big proponent of, you know, stationing troops in perpetuity or anything like that. But I honestly think that the Federation owes this planet something and to have played a role in the damage that's caused to the society and then just say, oh, okay, well, the Klingons are gone, so the problem's over, is very, I think, to borrow a uh, term from earlier, very, very naive. I would bet that within five years, these two sides will be at war with each other again. Mm-hmm. I just, the way that this was resolved is not a resolution. It's not, um, it's not something that would last because... We didn't see anything. I mean, we saw them having a party at the end. And, <laughs> and mm. you know, Kirk has to say goodbye to the woman that he slept with. And then they're <laughs> going to go. And so, yeah, I I would like to know what happened. So if the goal of this book was to tie up a private little war, mm-hmm. I think it failed. Because all it did was write another chapter in the story of a mess that Kirk created and it once again left it open to, well, what happens next? Mm-hmm. Well, if the goal was to give it the feel of a TOS episode, mm-hmm. I mean, Kirk kind of warps off on his next adventure right. at the end of this one as well. And we're left not knowing what happens right. next. So if that was the goal, then I think it succeeded. So it depends <laughs> on what you're looking to get out of the book. And I mm-hmm. don't know. We haven't talked to Jeff. I don't know what his personal goals were. That's why we love to have the authors on to actually find out like what, what mm-hmm. were you going for in the story? So I'm going to be mixed here on the book. Um, it didn't really engage me personally. So that's my personal feeling about it. As far as the, the book itself goes, trying to look at it from two sides, as I said, if it's meant to be a sequel to a private little war, I think it failed. If it's meant to be authentic to the original series and feel like an episode, then I think that it probably succeeded for the most part. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would agree with uh, with both of those. I think, I mean, it was it was ambitious. I think a private little war is very difficult to follow up on, as much as it demands a follow up. It's kind of an illogical story and it kind the ending doesn't make a lot of sense and it's hard to know exactly where to go from there so i applaud jeff marriott in um in attempting to write this story and and in tackling that idea but the execution to me is problematic 
and in many of the same ways that the original episode itself was problematic. Yeah, I agree. So, so my rating on it is going to be four too many Mugato attacks. <laughs> oh man, I'm going to go with four flintlock rifles. Okay, excellent. Yeah. <laughs> Cuz you can defend the fort with those, but you can't win the war. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Well, Dan, thanks for sitting in with me today. I think we had a good discussion, actually. I wasn't quite sure how we were going to approach this book, but I think that we um, dug into it pretty well. I certainly tried to see a couple of sides of it because, like I said, I like you said, um, I do applaud Jeff for his efforts on the book, and I, I don't want to be too hard on the book. It's one of those where it really kind of depends on what you're looking to get out of it. So, mm-hmm. so I think and it's um, difficult subject matter. For and, sure. and, and it's very difficult and deep subject matter as well. And very divisive subject matter as well, which is one reason I was a little bit concerned about discussing it because I don't, <laughs> I don't like to be divisive. You know, I mm-hmm. have my views. I know other people have theirs. I like to talk about both sides and try not to, um, you know, be too, blindly opinionated either way so (laughs) absolutely all right well dan i hope you will be back with us very soon but until then if people want to find you on the interwebs and read your wonderful book reviews and such where should they go well uh thank you for that um my uh, book review website is treklet.com uh very easy to find on twitter i'm at treklet reviews facebook.com slash treklitreviews and my reviews of new releases as well as written interviews with the authors can be found on trekcore.com. Excellent. All right. We'll come back soon, Dan. Absolutely. Thanks for having me again. Well, there's our look at Serpents in the Garden. I hope you enjoyed the discussion and I hope you'll share your thoughts with us on the story as well. But this isn't the only thing we've been talking about here at Trek FM. So here's a quick look at some other things you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.FM, Standard Orbit. I mean, like, like it's, it's been talked about, you know, by Shatner that he's like, oh, I wanted to have the Enterprise find God or something like that. Well, how does that work? Yeah, well, right. You know, and it's like, well, it doesn't work the way you're doing it in this movie. Earl Grey. What if it was like a geeky tween boy? Data, Data, where are you? They're just like, shut that off. <laughs> Mr. Data, I've got a problem. The Ready Room. When they finally do get rid of Decker, it's on Kirk's personal authority as captain of the Enterprise. And like, it seems to me if you're, say, a captain in the U.S. Navy and an admiral takes command of your ship, you can't just like get rid of him because of your personal authority as captain of the ship. The Orb. And again, it's, it's something, as you know, as we said before, the system is not set up to allow him to express that idea in any other way, but by the spectacle of this trial, which would presumably be impossible to hide, it is a way for him to express this alternate viewpoint that maybe the, the morality of his society is, uh, is under threat. To the journey! We are here to talk to you about a very heavy-handed topic. This is kind of a dark area for us. No, I'm just kidding. We're talking about death and Voyager. Commentary, Trek Stars. When they fall out the pod people, and they say, why, what year is it? And Data says, why, it's the Earth year 2364. I fell off my chair 47 <laughs> times. He's like, they just put the, oh, my, okay, okay. Warp 5. Archer doesn't close himself off to any possibility. He takes the evidence and comes to the best choice that he can. And that's not always easy for anyone 
but that's the kind of person that Degra is too. Melodic tricks. In fact, it had two versions of the theme, one which ran from seasons one to three, and one which ran from season four onwards. Now, some people prefer the first music with the poignancy of the lone trumpet, others prefer the second incarnation. Continuing mission. If we were to sort of able to rewrite the canon, the uniforms we've got, they were the uniforms in the middle of Enterprise and TOS. But because they were designed during a time when peace wasn't as prosperous as it is in the original series the uniforms did have a bit more of a militaristic look to them literary tricks you know what i love about comics though sometimes is what happened here in this panel with beverly and troy clearly troy's stunt double wandered into the scene i say is that troy (laughs) (laughs) and that's what else is happening on trek.fm So check out all of these shows and find out what we're talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe. You can find them anywhere you get your podcast. We're in iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn. We're on Windows Phone. You can get us on Xbox, Zune, and BlackBerry. We're on Spreaker and also SoundCloud. And of course, you can go to our website to the show page and you can stream from there. And you can grab the RSS link if you'd like to pop that into another podcasting application. If you're on iTunes, be sure to check out our artist page in the iTunes store. We have nearly a thousand episodes here on the network, so there is a wealth of interviews and character discussions and episode discussions, talk of books and comics and games and music, all kinds of things here from the past few years. And we try to help those bubble up to the surface from time to time on our artist page in special rows with different themes. And the quickest way to get there is to simply go to iTunes.com slash TrekFM. And while you're there, if you enjoyed the show, take a moment and leave us a star rating and a written review. We love to hear from you, and it does help other Star Trek books and comics fans find the show as they're searching the iTunes store. As I mentioned earlier, I would love to hear your thoughts on Serpents in the Garden or anything else you want to talk about in the world of Star Trek. You can find us on Twitter. Our username is TrekFM. We're on Facebook at Facebook.com slash TrekFM. We have a community on G+. Also, we have forums on our website at Trek.fm slash forums. Our contact form is at Trek.fm slash contact, and that'll come to Matthew and me both by email. And you can even leave us a voicemail if you look in the left sidebar on the show page. If you'd like to find me, you can find me on Twitter. My username is C Brian Jones. That's the letter C and Brian with a Y. I'm also on Facebook at facebook.com slash C Brian Jones. And I have my own website as well at cbrianjones.com. If you'd like to find my usual co-host, Matthew, he is on Twitter also. His username is MattRushing02. And Matthew and I do another show together called The Orb, which is all about Deep Space Nine. So you can catch us both over there. And then elsewhere on the network, you can find me on The Ready Room with lots of other hosts every week where we talk about news and all five live-action Star Trek series. I also do Warp 5, which is about Enterprise, Continuing Mission, which is about fan series and independent films and games as well. There's also Matterstream, which is about the world inspired by Star Trek. And I bring you Star Trek news every day of the week on Hyper Channel. Before I let you go, I would like to remind you about our sponsor for today's show, Audible.com. As I talked about in news, they are the best source for audiobooks that you'll find anywhere, so drop by and check them out. Grab Michael Jan Friedman's Faces of Fire or any other book you like 
absolutely free just for trying Audible. You'll really be helping us out here at Literary Treks when you do that. It'll help us keep the show coming to you every single week. And all you need to do to get it is to go to audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And if you decide not to stick with them after the trial, remember you get to keep that book, so there's nothing to lose. But go check them out. I know you're going to love them. And we really thank Audible for their support of the show and the network. Thanks again to Dan for sitting in today and joining the discussion of Serpents in the Garden. Matthew tells me he will be back next week, and we have some great author interviews coming up for you in the weeks and months to come. And we're also going to finally get back over to some of those comics that I've been promising you as well. So thanks for listening to the show today, everyone, and of course for listening every single week. And until next time, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.